in your Bibles this morning, the book of Luke chapter number 16. Luke chapter number 16. And we continue with uh, the book of Luke. For those of you who are visiting with us, I'm going through, preaching through the entire book. This is message number 44. And uh, we still have a ways to go, but this is one of the great passages of the Scripture that many of you uh, are very familiar with, but it certainly bears our attention. I'll ask you to stand. Luke chapter 16, we stand here when we read God's Word, and I look down in verse number 19 to begin the reading this morning, Luke 16, 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus who was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. It came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and he seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil or bad things. Now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And beside all of this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they would repent. And he said unto him, If they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they persuade it, though one rose from the dead. Thank you, and you may be seated. My subject today is Christianity's most hated doctrine. Christianity's most hated doctrine. Unbelievers use the word hell as profanity. Churches today are strangely silent on the subject, but Jesus spoke often of the subject of hell. Today, you really have a rare opportunity. I don't want to sound boastful, but uh, you have the opportunity to hear a preacher open the Bible, and give a thorough explanation of the doctrine of hell. Now, you say, I don't know if that's an opportunity or not. Had you announced this, I probably wouldn't have come this morning. I don't know if I want to hear about that or not. Here's the truth. 
Preaching on hell today has become so rare in America, people writing books about it. Like, What Happened to Hell? One of the titles, it's newly published. And it laments the fact that preachers and churches no longer are even talking about it, much less giving a thorough explanation of the subject. So, it's rare. When I say it's a rare opportunity, I mean you may not ever hear another sermon on hell unless you come here and I live a, longer, a little bit longer. But it's very possible that you would not. You see, today, only slightly more than half, about 58% of evangelicals, I'm not talking about mainline denominational people, people in liberal churches. I'm talking about evangelicals who claim to believe the Bible, who believe in salvation by grace. Only about 58% of them indicate that they still believe in a doctrine of a literal hell. Erwin Lutzer, recently retired as the pastor of the Moody Church, the great church founded by D.L. Moody in Chicago, one of the most influential churches in, uh, in America today, or has been for over 100 years. Erwin Lutzer is known as a, not only a wonderful preacher, but a, a great scholar as well. And here's what he said just recently, and I quote, My heart is in the church. But I see the church submitting to the culture. Instead of allowing the Scripture to stand alone, we interpret it in a way that is consistent with culture. I want to challenge the Christians of this country. Will we interpret the culture through the lens of Scripture, or will we interpret the Scripture through the lens of the culture? And I'm afraid that is happening more and more, that we're afraid if we tell people the truth of God's Word, they won't come back to church. And uh, that thought has crossed my mind. Do you really tell people everything that it says? The answer is, if you're committed to the truth of God's Word, the answer is unequivocally. Yes, you tell the people what the Word of God says. And the people who love the Lord love truth. And the people who are unsaved still need to hear the truth of God's Word. And so today, my subject is Christianity's most hated doctrine, hell. My goal right now is to present to you a very carefully reasoned, biblically-based view of the subject. And what is the evidence that I'm going to present to you today? I'm not going to try to prove to you that there's a place called hell or anything about eternal punishment. It's not my role to try to prove the integrity of, of God's Word every time I get up here. I think you know I'm committed to that, and I think most of you are committed to the integrity of the Scripture. And so today, my goal is to present to you the evidence for hell from the Bible. You see, no human, ancient or modern, has been able to pull back the curtain that lies between us and death. And no scientist, psychologist, MD, chemist, botanist, physicist, no scientist has ever been able to pierce 
that veil that looks into the afterlife. The only source of information that we have is divine revelation. By divine revelation, I mean the revelation that Almighty God has given to people in His holy book, the inerrant and infallible Word of God, the Scripture, the Holy Bible, whatever you may choose to call it. And in the Bible, there are 162 New Testament texts that speak about hell or judgment. Of the 162 New Testament texts that speak of hell and judgment, 70 of them were uttered by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. People have debated about whether this is a parable or not. If you read a commentary, probably they're going to spend a lot of time at the, at the opening of the article. They're going to talk about, well, is this a parable or is it a real story? It doesn't say in the Bible that it's a parable. Uh, the, the argument is from the scholars that Jesus never used the name of a real person in a parable. All the parables are about a man went forth and did thus and so. And this, this story had, uses a person's name, this man Lazarus. So the scholars say, well, that's evidence that this is a true story. But let's say it's not uh, 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 an account of something that literally happened, that Jesus did make up a parable. All of his other parables are true. So in the bottom line of logic here, it doesn't matter if it's a parable or not. It was spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ, who is, in fact, truth himself, and every word he ever uttered was truth. And so whether it was a parable or not is really beside the point. Jesus Christ taught us this to give us an insight into the afterlife. And in doing so, Jesus Christ, we know, never spoke a single word but truth. So put her down, whether it's a parable or not, is truth from the Lord Jesus Christ for us to believe today. I want to remind you that though the subject may be harsh to some people's ears, that these words, this description of hell was spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ, who was the greatest, the kindest, the most compassionate human who ever lived upon the earth. And I say human because he was human as well as divine. And I want to remind you that the one who taught us about hell is the same one who was the Savior who went to the cross and poured out his blood to keep people from going to hell, who cared enough about your salvation that he told you the truth about the destiny of the wicked and then with his own blood sealed a pardon that you is available to you today. Christianity's most hated doctrine, hell. The passage, when I look at it, reveals to me that there are three ultimate realities. Three ultimate realities. There's the reality of life. We all have to live once we're born. There's the ultimate reality of death. All of us must die. And there's the ultimate reality of eternity. Life doesn't end at the grave. 
Number one, the ultimate reality of life. And I look back in verse 19, if you will look with me, and it describes a rich man who is clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fares sumptuously, and he does it every single day of his life here. And so we have this study in contrast. In verse 20, we have a beggar. His name is Lazarus. And somebody has to carry him. I assume he's paralyzed or he's handicapped in some form. Somebody carries him and lays him at the gate. The gate of this man, a gate implies that he has some sort of a state, some sort of a big, magnificent house. He lives in some mansion. And somebody, maybe a friend or a family member, carries this poor beggar and lays him down at the gate. And this man, Lazarus, not only is handicapped, but he's full of sores. He probably has rubbed himself raw because he can't move. And so he's not only poor and handicapped, but this man is also, he's sick. He's full of sores. And he's hungry. In verse 21, the only source of food is to be fed with the crumbs which fall from the rich man's table. And the dogs in the neighborhood come and they lick his sores. And so we have these two men, one rich and living in luxury. Faring sumptuously means he's living, I mean he's living well. He's living at the top of the pyramid. And that he's dressed in purple in those days. Purple was uh, unavailable to the common man because the dye for clothes came from a, a, a place called Tyre up on the seacoast north of Israel. And they would catch this shellfish and crush it. And there was some chemical in this shellfish's body that when they put it in the water, it turned purple, and they would dye the clothing of the wealthy. But if you were a common man, you couldn't afford a, common, uh, a purple garment. And so that was a, a symbol of affluence and wealth. And so this rich man is living in luxury, and this poor man is handicapped and sick and hungry, and he's living at the gate of this man. And this poor man just prays that he can get some leftovers, some scraps that will be left over after the rich man and his friends all feast. This is life. Some people do well in life. Some people have a very difficult time in life. I don't know where you are on that spectrum. Most of us are somewhere in between there. But it's the ultimate reality and in life, some people do very well, and some people don't do as well. But then there's the ultimate reality of death. Secondly, in verse 22, both of them died. All men die. Rich people die. Poor people die. Old death comes with his scythe looking for people, and he doesn't, uh, he doesn't distinguish. He doesn't discriminate between the rich and the poor, even the young and the old. Notice with me, verse 22 talks about their, their bodies. The rich man died, and he was buried. And so in those days, if you were wealthy, you could afford the tomb and all the, 
the things that went with a burial. But it doesn't say that Lazarus was, the poor man is even buried. It just says that he died. And so here they are, both of them passing into the next world. There's a principle there I don't want you to miss. Our worldly condition right now in this life is no indication of our future state. I want to say that again. I want you to get a hold of it. No matter how well you're doing right now in this life or no matter how poorly you're doing right now in this life, there's no indication that that will continue in the next life. Our worldly condition is no indication of what the future holds for us. Job chapter 14 and verse 10 says, Man dieth and he wasteth away. Yea, man giveth up the ghost or gives up his spirit, his soul. And then Job ends the verse saying, And where is he? Well, the rich man is in hell. In verse number, what is it? Verse number 23, in hell he lifted up his eyes being in torments. And where is Lazarus? Lazarus is where Abraham is in verse 23. Abraham, the man who believed in God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Abraham, the man who all the Jews looked to as the father of the Jewish people. In fact, Lazarus calls him, or, or the rich man calls, uh, calls Abraham Father Abraham twice in the text passage here. He's acknowledging that he's a Jew. This rich man is a Jewish man, and he's done very well. And so now he's appealing to the father of his, uh, of his ethnicity, if you will, asking him for help. And so the re ultimate reality is they both die. And then the third ultimate reality here is that life doesn't end at the grave. Life goes on into eternity. Now, much of the world this morning doesn't believe that. Much, many of the people in America no longer believe that because we've left our Judeo-Christian heritage, and so we've, we've imbibed all these philosophies. And there's a high percentage of Americans today believe that the grave is the end. But I want to tell you, there are three ultimate realities taught in the Bible, and you've got to deal with them. And I have to deal with them. There's the ultimate reality of life itself. I'm here, and in whatever condition I am, I, that's, that's the reality of things. I'm going to die. And thirdly, I'm going to go into eternity. I'm going to, the real me, the soul and the spirit, the mind, the emotions, the will, all that involves the soul and the spirit, it's going to leave this body that you identify and I identify as being Bill Monroe. I look in the mirror and I say, there I am, but I'm going to lay that body aside and that soul and spirit are going to go into eternity. And the reality is there's two destinations and only two. And so both of these men's spirits depart, but notice they continue to exist, but they continue to exist in very different places. You call it the great rehearsal. Somebody's called it that. Now the rich man is poor, and the poor man is rich. 
now the beggar who was sick and hurting and handicapped is whole, and now the rich man says twice, I am tormented in this place. And Lazarus is with Abraham, the father of the Jews. He's in his bosom, means he's in his presence. He's there with him. He's close to him. I tried to graphically depict this, so Jane helped me this week, and we made up a a little graph here, and you can look at it. The word for hell there in verse 23 is Hades. Now, in our world today, when you say Hades, people immediately think that's hell. That's, they think of the flames of hell and that traditional picture of, of hell. But actually, the word Hades, as used here in this passage, was the place of departed spirits. The place, if you want a definition, Hades is the place of departed spirits. It's where spirits went after the body died they left the earth, and they went to Hades. And Hades, I think the best way to describe it biblically is it had two compartments in it, two separate sections. The sections are separated from a great gulf, as you see there on the slide. And apparently these people, I don't know that that's true for everybody, but these people could see across the gulf. And the side where the righteous people went was called Abraham's bosom. And the side where the unrighteous went after death was called hell, the place of punishment. And so you have these two places, hell, the place of torment. And you have one man there, and Abraham's bosom, the place of paradise, often in the New Testament was called paradise. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. He's talking about Abraham's bosom, the very same, uh, the very same place. And so this passage reveals to us these three ultimate realities. Number two, I've called this Christianity's most hated doctrine, the doctrine of eternal punishment. I sure don't enjoy preaching on this. I look at the fouls of old messages that I've preached, and boy, I, there's the love of God, and it's this thick, and here's salvation, and it's this thick, and then I come to hell, and I'll admit to you it's about this thick. I've preached on it many times. I, I don't like to get up and talk about hell. It's unpleasant. On the other hand, I preach the Bible, and I preach the Bible as it is, and I've preached through 15 chapters. I come to the 16th chapter. There it is. What are we going to do with it? We're going to ignore it? We're going to tear it out of our Bible? No, we've got to face what God said about it. Now, the only way you can disregard it is to say, I don't believe the Bible. But if you're a Bible-believing, you have to deal with it. It's an ultimate reality for every one of us. We're going to die, and we're going to be in eternity. In verse 23, you will notice that the dead in eternity have some sort of body. I don't know what it is. Lazarus was, Lazarus was probably burned because he was such a poor man. But the rich man probably had an elaborate funeral I mean, they had a big, long black hearse. They had the pallbearers. They had a 
crypt in the nicest cemetery in town, and everybody was dressed up, and all these friends came, and everybody, you know the scene. You, you've been around the funerals. Nobody went to Lazarus' funeral. Nobody knew. Nobody cared. But they both left their bodies. Their bodies are on the earth. One of them's body is in a tomb. The other body probably cremated. No longer exists. But in spite of that, I want you to notice in verse 23, there's recognition. In hell, he lifted up his eyes so he can see. How does he see? He's not a ghost. He's in torments. He seeth Abraham way over there in the other compartment in paradise in Abraham's bosom and Lazarus with him. He recognizes two characters, Abraham and Lazarus. How does he recognize them? He recognizes them because there's consciousness in hell and there's sight. The senses are still operating in hell. Don't ask me to tell you more about it. I just know that there's some sort of form, some sort of body that people have even in eternity after, after their death. And so this rich man cries out to Abraham, Father Abraham. He thinks that because he's the father of the Jews and he is a Jew, that maybe there'll be some connection, there'll be some mercy, some relief. And then in verse 24, I begin to see what hell is like. And I find out that people thirst in hell. Oh, would you send Lazarus back? Oh, I didn't pay attention to him when he was lying outside the gate of my state, but now I'd like for him to come and serve me. <laughs> this guy's been selfish all of his life, and he's selfish after life. He's wanting Lazarus to come and serve him. Will you send him and just, I don't want a whole lot, just one drop of water on my tongue, for I'm tormented in the flame. The word torments, if you look it up and study its derivation here in its language, it's not talking about physical torment necessarily here. It's talking about anguish. The dictionary says it's sorrow. It is grief. But it's grief so profound, grief from the spirit, grief from the deepest depths of a man. And so people thirst, and they grieve, and they anguish, and they sorrow. And in verse 25, note with me, they have memory. They have memory. Son, Abraham said to him, son, remember. And some have said that the worst part of hell is the memory. Remember the good things that you had down there, and remember how poorly Poor Lazarus was treated, and so this man is haunted by his memory. He can remember what he did in the body. Verse 26, and there's a great gulf. The word, Greek word there is chasm, the word from which we get chasm. There's a great chasm, a divide that is impassable. Nobody can go over it, and it's fixed. In other words, he is eternally separated from God. This is the Bible's description of hell. Now, very quickly, turn with me, the book of Matthew. It, 
Matthew carries so many passages dealing with the subject of hell. I want you to go to chapter 25. But if I had time and I was doing a thorough Bible study of this, I would show you that in Matthew 13, our Lord described hell. In Matthew 22, our Lord described hell. In uh, Matthew 24, there's a description of hell. In Matthew 25, there are descriptions of hell. We're going to just look at one of them because it makes a very specific point. In Matthew 25 and verse 41, Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So hell was not created for man. God doesn't want any human being he ever created to ever even come close to going to hell. Hell is created for the devil, for Satan himself, who led the rebellion against God and who still leads men in rebellion against God today. So hell was not originally created for humankind. It was for the devil and for his angels, his followers, his demon spirits. But go down to verse 46. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment. The word everlasting is a fascinating word. Aonios. Aonios. Aonios is translated everlasting punishment. These shall go away into everlasting punishment. How long does hell last? Is it eternal? Aonios. Everlastingly. But listen, go to the rest of the verse. But the righteous into life eternal. And so why don't you circle the word eternal in your Bible and then circle the word everlasting in your Bible? Guess what? Same word, aonios. Aonios, everlasting. Duration without end. So the guy comes and says, I don't believe in eternal punishment. Well, do you, do you believe in eternal heaven? It's the same word in the Scripture used to describe both. You can't have it both ways. You either have everlasting punishment in hell and everlasting bliss in heaven, or you don't. But it's the same word, and I remind you it was the Lord Jesus Christ who used that word. And somebody says to me, well, pastor, is the fire literal? Is there really fire in hell? And I would go again to the only source of information we have about it, and it's the book of Revelation, chapter 14, and verse number 11, where it says, the smoke of their torment ascendeth upward forever. The smoke of their torment ascends upward forever. Where there's smoke, there's fire. I think I heard that, didn't I? Yes, the, the fire is literal. Now, when you take these scriptures, let me make an application. You apply them to where we are today in American life. These scriptures deal a death blow. I mean, they shoot. It's like shooting a squirrel with a cannon. I mean, it just blows to bit two favorite heresies of people today in America. What are they? The first one is called universalism. It means that everybody's going to be saved that after death you're going to get a second chance in essence and you 
You get a little taste of hell, and then you decide, well, I, I, this isn't for me. I think I am going to believe in Christ, and you're going to get saved and get out. That's universalism. The whole world, nobody's going to ever be uh, in hell uh, through eternity except Satan and his angels. And the second doctrine is called annihilationism. Annihilate. That instead of punishment, the unrighteous, the wicked of the world will be annihilated. Their soul and their spirit just simply cease to exist at death. God just extinguishes their existence, and so you die, and that's it. Nothing. Nihilism. Annihilationism. And these scriptures teach us something 180 degrees opposite of that. It teaches us that heaven and hell are both eternal. And these scriptures teach us that life exists. It's duration without end. That's the very meaning of the words themselves. Now, thirdly today, first of all, I tried to show you that this passage deals with the three ultimate realities of life. And secondly, today, I wanted to show you that it's the most controversial and hated doctrine in all of the Bible. And now I'd like you to see one other point, that the emphasis of the Scripture when we're describing hell is that of God's justice. The emphasis of the Scripture is not on the punishment. It's on God's justice, that God is a just God. Now, hear me. Are you listening to me? Give me good eye contact. I want everybody to hear what I'm getting ready to say. God is a just God. His punishment is going to be a just punishment for whomever is in need of punishment. What does justice mean? We have so little of it in our society today that it's, it needs to be defined, doesn't it? What is justice? Here's what justice is, that the punishment exactly fits the crime. Justice means I'm not going to ever be punished one bit more than I deserve, even the people in hell will not be punished one degree more than they deserve, according to God's value system, and they will not be punished one degree less than they deserve, because justice means full, complete justice, not too harsh, not too lenient, the punishment fits the crime. And the crime in the divine economy of things means that to, to reject Jesus Christ as your Savior, to exist throughout your life in unbelief and rebellion against the plan of salvation, and that's, that's the thing that... that determines a person's eternal destiny. Where does the Bible say that God is just? I, I'm not going to ask you to turn to them for the sake of time, but you may want to write these references down because you need to fix firmly in your mind, friend, that God is a just God. 
He's not, nobody's going to be punished by God more than they deserve nor less than they deserve. Isaiah 45, 21 is the first reference. Isaiah 45 and 21 describes God as a just God and a Savior. He's just. Don't let some wild-eyed extremist sermon or preaching that you heard or some movie that you watched, don't let it make God into some fiend who enjoys torturing people throughout eternity. That's not our God. Our God is the most loving being in all the existence of the universe. He's not a fiend who's looking down and enjoying torturing people. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him won't perish but have everlasting life. For heaven's sakes, whoever loved you enough to give their son for you? God is a just God and a Savior, one who rescues us from our sin. And then there's Genesis 18 and 25 where Abraham is asking God as he intercedes for the city of Sodom, trying to save it from destruction. And God says to Abraham in his prayer, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the answer screams, yes, boxcar letter size in the sky. Yes, God will always do right. He'll never do wrong. He's incapable of wrong. He's a just God. And then there's Hebrews 2 and 2 in the New Testament. Every sin and every transgression, every sin and every transgression will receive a just recompense of reward, a just payment. Every sin and every transgression is going to receive a just punishment, the Bible says. In the early 1900s, there was an Italian writer. His name was Dante Algetti. And he wrote an epic poem. And if you went to English 101 in college when I went back in the dark ages when they actually still taught English, um, I went there and we studied the divine comedy. And boy, it was insufferable. It was a tough course, tough part of the course. And the part one of three parts in the divine comedy is called the Inferno. And Dante, in his imagination, it's imaginary, of course, it's fiction, but he's describing an imaginary trip through hell. But he didn't base it very carefully on the Bible. And what he described is really more like a torture chamber than it is just punishment. And by the way, I've heard some sermons like that. We had a guy here about 30 years ago preach a sermon, and he said, uh, he, he described people as like frying bacon in a pan or something like that. And no wonder people hate the doctrine of hell when you have that kind of overstatement and overkill. God is not about hurting people. But God's justice is at stake. And his son went and hung on that cross and poured out every drop of his blood for us. 
And he's given people multiple, multiple opportunities to come to him and trust him as their Savior. And because they love their sins, because they love their sins, they harden their will. And they say, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't believe that stuff. And if you don't want to adjust your life to obedience of Him, then it's easy to just say, I don't believe it. It's easy to say, I don't believe it now. That rich man might have said one day, I don't believe it before he died. Here's something I want you to get as you turn your Bible to Matthew 11. I don't want you to forget this part of this message and this doctrine today either. And that is that God's justice then requires degrees of punishment in hell. Dante told me everybody's going to this common place with all these flames. No, hell is going to have degrees of punishment or it would not be just. It would not be a just God who put Hitler in the same place with a person who had lived a somewhat normal life in America. That wouldn't be justice either, would it? So there are degrees of punishment that will be apportioned out to the people in hell. And I base that upon Matthew 11 and 24. Jesus is speaking to the people there who have rejected him, who have become his enemies. And in verse 22, he says, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre, the place where they got the purple dye, and sadden at the day of judgment than for you. He's speaking to Jews in Israel. It will be more tolerable. Underline the words more tolerable. In other words, their punishment is not going to be like you who knew the truth and rejected it. Verse 24, he says it again. It will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. The Christ rejectors in Jesus' day who knew the Old Testament, who knew the prophets, who knew the prophecies, those people and had heard Jesus teach and preach and seen his miracles and still rejected him. And Jesus said those men in Sodom and Gomorrah, they didn't know anything about this. And when in judgment they stand, it will be more tolerable. It'll be easier. There'll be less punishment for them than there will be for you who sinned against all kinds of light and opportunity. You see, all of us partake equally of original sin, but all of us don't commit equally the same number of actual sins or the same type of sins. A young man sat before me this week in my office, and we were talking. He said, I've been told that all sin is the same. Is that true? All sin is the same in the sight of God? And I said, absolutely not. If all sin were the same, then all punishment would be the same. Some sins, there was capital punishment for them. Some sins, you sacrificed a turtle dove, relatively no value at all. No, all sin is not the same. And because of that, God would not be just if everybody was punished the same. And so, we will be judged according to the number of sins, and we'll be judged according to the type of sins. 
we being the people who I'm identifying myself with unbelievers. And for everybody to be punished equally would mean injustice to many people, wouldn't it? Well, I'm out of time. But hear me. Nobody has to go to hell. People choose to go to hell. God has another way and a far better destiny plan for every one of you. It's the road of grace, not justice. I've talked a lot about justice. God knows in America we need to talk about justice. But it needs to be real justice. It doesn't need a modifier. I'm not talking about social justice. I'm talking about divine justice. And you see, God's way is the way of grace. And 800 times in the Bible, he uses the word come. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We're not talking about justice when we talk about salvation. Justice for us, it was justice for Christ when he bore our sins on the cross. But we're talking about justice We're we're talking about the grace of God, the unmerited favor, the unearned goodness that God wants to give to you today because Christ took your place and suffered His justice. If you're here today and you've never been saved, I want you to come right now as I give an appeal, an altar call. I want you to slip out of your seat now, why do we do that? In Baptist churches, we've traditionally, for hundreds of years, we've given what we call the altar call. I guess it's a way of making people identify that I'm really serious about this. I mean business. I'm not so concerned about what people around me are thinking and all that. I want one thing. I want to know that my name is written in the book of life. I want to know that my sins are forgiven and that Christ is living in my life. And if you're like that today and you don't know that, I want you to come down. And standing at the front of the building here is going to be our, some of our staff pastors. Every one of them are very competent, very able to help you. And we'll sit down with you and we'll open the Scripture and we'll pray with you and help you till you absolutely can come to a position where you say, I know I'm secure in Christ. I never have to worry again about hell. I'm under the blood. I'm saved. Stand to your feet with me, if you will, please.